I invite you to turn your Bibles to the final chapter in the book of Revelation. And this is a little bittersweet to announce. This is the final sermon in the book of Revelation. So we'll wrap up the book this evening. I hope it's been a great blessing to you, even as it has been to us. And we're confident that it has because of the Spirit's work in our midst. But we're going to look at verses 12 through 21 this evening of Revelation 22. So let me read that section for us. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God, that he has given to us for our benefit and through which he speaks to us today. So may he give us ears to hear what he is saying to us. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Beloved, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So let's ask the Lord now to lead us and guide us into all truth by his Holy Spirit, and that he might cause us to love that which is righteous, even himself and his own holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come to seek you while you may be found, and to call upon you while you are near. We forsake our wicked ways as your word commands us to, and we abandon our unrighteous thoughts so that we might return to you. And as we repent, we ask for you to have compassion on us, 
That you might abundantly pardon us our sins for Jesus' sake. We confess that your forgiveness of our sins amazes us. For your thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are our ways your ways, O Lord. And so we come to you because we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we acknowledge that we come to you in need of absolutely everything, yet unable in and of ourselves to pay for anything. And so we cast ourselves upon your mercy, body and soul. And in obedience to your command, we come to feast upon Christ by faith, as we both hear of him and from him in your holy word. May your word have its effect in us this evening, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I know it was a long time ago, but hopefully you recall when we first began our studies in the book of Revelation, we spent seven weeks looking at Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, where there were those seven letters that were written to the seven churches that Jesus sent this angel to deliver to John, and then John wrote them, and they were then to be delivered to those seven historical churches. And if you remember, we said that while those letters were sent to seven historical churches, they are also intended for the church throughout the ages, for every church. And if you also recall, there was a basic structure to each one of those letters. And I want to oversimplify it a bit, but those basic structures were, there was overall a description of Christ, a description of who he is that would have been particularly helpful to that church, given whatever they were struggling with. And then there were, depending on the church, either comforts or warnings. And the reason that I bring that up, the structure of those seven letters, is as I was studying verses 12 through 21 of Revelation 22, it dawned on me the book ends very much as it began, with a call to the church to prepare her for what awaits her in between Christ's first and second coming, to prepare us that we might be ready for when Christ comes again. And so that's the pastoral intent here in these closing verses, that the Lord would use this word to prepare our hearts for Christ's return, and that he would use his word to cause us to be faithful as we await for his return. And so the outline that we'll have before us this evening very much follows the structure of those seven letters to the seven churches. And I'm not going to give you all of the verse markers because for the points in the outline, because we are going to be jumping all over the place. So I'll give you those verse markers as we walk through each of the points, but I'm not going to give them to you up front. But here are the three structures that will serve as the outline for the sermon. First of all, we're going to see three realities about Jesus, three realities about Jesus, revealing to us his glory, And why we ought to look to him and wait for his appearing. Second of all, we're going to look at three warnings from Jesus that he gives to the church. And then finally, thirdly, we're going to look at three comforts from Jesus to his church. That we might be comforted 
knowing that he is coming soon. And so, brothers and sisters, it's my hope and prayer, as it's been throughout this entire book, that the Lord would use his word to cause us to be faithful to him as we await his return, because he is our blessed hope. So let's look first, then, at the first structure that serves as the outline for tonight. We're going to look at the three realities about Jesus. And we see those descriptions in verses 13, verses 16, and verse 20. And we're going to look at each one of those. But as we turn to these three realities or descriptions of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that John ends the book this way. And it shouldn't surprise us because all throughout this book of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that you haven't missed this, again and again we're shown the glory of Christ. All of the judgments that come upon the earth between the time of Christ's first and second coming issue forth from the throne upon which he sits. He alone is worthy to open the scrolls, to open the seals. And all throughout the book we see again and again from different angles, he's going to crush his enemies. So we shouldn't be surprised that the book ends again, showing us the glorious truths about who Jesus is. And the first of those three realities is that he is God. We see that very clearly in verse 13. So look there with me. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the first descriptor or reality that we have here is showing us very clearly that Jesus is God because this first and last title is a title that God ascribes to himself again and again throughout the book of Isaiah, particularly in the 40th chapter. So chapter 41, chapter 44, chapter 48. And we know that Jesus likes to ascribe this reality to himself because he's already done that in the book of Revelation. He's already said that he's the first and the last in Revelation 1.17 and Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And so Jesus is saying, what can be said of the Lord, of Yahweh, can also be said of me. And what is this title ascribing to God, revealing to us that is true about God? That he is eternal. He is not like us. He doesn't have a beginning and then an end. God has always been. And this is also communicating to us, not just that he is eternal, It's also communicating to us the reality that he was there at the beginning and sovereign over all of those events, and he will be there at the end, and he's sovereign over those events as well, and everything in between he is sovereign over as well. And have we not seen that again and again and again all throughout the entire book? Jesus is the eternal, sovereign Lord, co-equal with the Father. And that's why John says in his gospel, the Father and I are one. And so the first reality that we see that we ought to rejoice in very clearly is that Jesus is God. But that's not all we see. The second reality that we see here is that he is man as well. See that very clearly in verse 16. So look there with me. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
Now, just as a freebie, as a bit of an aside, notice in the first half of verse 16, why has Jesus testified to these things, sent the angel to testify to these things? For us, for the churches, for our benefit. And so we can't be reminded of that enough. But then notice that Jesus goes on to say that he is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And these are descriptors that would clearly reveal to us that Jesus is truly man. He's not just truly God, he's truly man as well. And the first descriptor that he uses to communicate that is he's picking up this title of the descendant of David. He's making a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and following, where God promises to David, long after you're dead, David, One of your descendants, one of your offspring is going to sit on the throne and rule forever and ever. And Jesus is saying, I am David's offspring according to the flesh. This reveals to us that he is human. He also says that he is the root of David. And this is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 1 and 10, where again it's promised that There's going to be a descendant, offspring from David, and Jesus is saying, that is me. Now, this one might throw you for a bit of a loop, but Jesus also says that he is the bright morning star. Now, does anybody know what that's a reference to? It takes you way back to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, where Balaam is prophesying, and he says that the bright morning star is going to be raised up from among the Israelites, one of their own. And he is going to crush all of Israel's enemies. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the promised descendant, the man whom God has arisen up from his people who will crush their enemies. And again, have we not seen that again and again in this book? We've seen it from multiple angles, using multiple Old Testament descriptors. To show us that Jesus is this promised, conquering Messiah who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus is saying, that is me. I am truly God. I am truly man. And then the third reality that's revealed to us here, showing us Jesus' glory, is the reality that he's coming soon. The one who is truly God, truly man, the promised Messiah. He didn't just come a first time. He's going to come a second time. We see that very clearly in verse 20. Look there with me. He who testifies to these things, who's that? That's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. We know Jesus is the speaker there. Why? In part, because John then says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Now notice Jesus again testifies, these things are true. They ultimately come from me. And so we can know that they're true. But notice that Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And our response should be along with John, amen. Come Lord Jesus, we can't wait for you to come. Why? Because we're so thankful that he came the first time, aren't we? Because you see, brothers and sisters, part of why this is being shoved in our faces by Jesus with these descriptors, the fact that he's God and man is because the only one who could save us, the only fit mediator between us and God would have to be both truly God and truly man. 
truly God so that he could pay that infinite debt that we owed God for our sins that we could never pay back. And truly man, why? Because he had to be a fit substitute for us. We couldn't have an inanimate object like a rock or one of these chairs be our substitute or a dog or a cat. No, the mediator, the substitute had to share in our nature, be like us in every regard yet without sin. And Jesus comes the first time and reconciles us to God through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. But you see, while his kingdom was inaugurated in his first coming, he's going to come again and bring the fullness of his kingdom so that there's no more sin, so that there's no more sorrow, so that there's no more death. And so we long for this day and rejoice to know that he says, hold on, persevere, endure as hard as it is. Why? Because he's coming soon. Now, that soon is a relative term, isn't it? Soon. Well, he's been coming soon for a long time, hasn't he? But you see, at the end of all things, brothers and sisters, we're going to realize exactly what he meant. Your coming was short. It was worth it all. And so come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we long for that day, and we're thankful that we have such a Savior. So we've looked first at these three realities about Jesus, his glory being revealed to us. And then secondly... Let's look at the three warnings from Jesus. These three warnings that he gives us, again, very much like the structure of the seven letters to the seven churches. And we'll find these warnings in verse 12 and verse 15 and verses 18 and 19. And again, I know I sound like a broken record, but it shouldn't surprise us that the book of Revelation ends with warnings. Because I hope you've noticed, shot throughout this entire book of the Revelation is warnings again and again for the church to not give in to worldliness, to not be given to cowardice and not stand boldly and courageously. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as really Jesus closes the canon of scripture, he tells us that we ought to be warned. We ought to know what we're up against. And here's something I want to point out too very quickly. Warnings to the church serve two purposes. And we've talked about this a lot when we went through the book of Hebrews, if you remember that. But the two purposes that warnings from Jesus serve to the church, first of all, is there are unbelievers in our midst. There are those who are identified with the visible church. They've been baptized. They sit there. They sing the songs. They try to do kind things to their neighbors. They participate in the sacraments. They're part of the visible church. But here's the thing. They're not a part of the invisible church. Now, I don't have a detector up here that I can walk by you and say, oh, visible church and invisible church. Oh, just the visible church. So I don't know who those folks are, but the Lord Jesus does. And he says to those folks in the congregation, you need to be warned. If you continue in unrepentant sin, if you continue rejecting me, though outwardly you're paying lip service to me, you need to be warned that that's not going to end well for you. And so that's the first purpose that these warnings serve to the church. The second purpose that these warnings serve to the church is as we as God's children, those who are part of the visible and invisible church, hear these warnings 
The Spirit uses them to cause us to tremble with fear and fly to Christ. And good parents do this. Good parents warn their children, even at times threaten their children of what will happen to them. Here's what the outcome is going to be if you don't change course. Now, unlike God, as human parents, we don't have the ability to cause them to make the right choice, but the Lord does. And so he uses these warnings to that end in the midst of his church. And so I think it's a helpful precursor before we jump into looking at these. And the first of these three warnings that Jesus gives is that he's coming to judge. He is returning again and he will judge his church. So look there at verse 12 with me. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Again, have we not seen this again and again and again all throughout the book? John gives us symbols, images, pictures of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back again to judge the living and the dead. And so we've seen it several times, right, as we've gone through each one of these cycles. And so here we are reminded again that no one will go unpunished who rebels against the Lord and against his anointed, even if you're within the church. Because who are the people that would hear the prophecy in this book? It's those within the church. And so there's this warning. And I can't imagine that given a, I know we're not a huge meeting size this evening, but even in a congregation this size, there are folks out there, some of you out there who fit this description. Who you come, not because you believe, but because you don't want to disappoint your spouse or your family or your friends. Or maybe you like hearing teaching in this way and you're just sort of curious. But here's the thing. Jesus knows exactly where you are. So be warned that he is returning to judge. He comes with his recompense. Now, in part, that's a comfort to us as believers, isn't it? Well, we're excited that Jesus is coming back. He works good works in us and then graciously rewards those good works that he works in us and we rejoice in that. But the main emphasis here in verse 12 is he's coming to judge. And so you ought to be warned and you ought to be ready knowing that he will not be mocked. Justice will be upheld. So the first warning is that Jesus is coming to judge. The second warning is that Jesus's punishment is hell. For those who do not repent, for unbelievers. So look there at verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Wow. John does not mince words, does he? Outside are the dogs. Now, this verse 15 comes on the heels of of verse 14, where those who wash their robes in the blood, little teaser there, that's what they're washing their robes in, that they will have the right to the tree of life and to fellowship with God and his people for all eternity. But then there are the dogs, those who will be outside. And what John is doing here, he's not trying to be unnecessarily offensive. He's using Old Testament language that his audience would understand. See, dogs were unclean. 
Dogs were looked down upon in the ancient world in general, but especially by the Jews, dogs were, we got to guard those things from getting into the temple. And so the priests would guard the temple so that dogs wouldn't get in there and make that which is clean, unclean by their presence. And you see what John is saying is there's no place in the presence of God with God's people for those who are unclean, for unbelievers in the new heavens and the new earth. And so they will not be brought into the garden temple city. That paradise will not be regained for them. Instead, they'll be outside of the city. Well, what's outside of the city? Outside of the city, we saw earlier in Revelation, is the lake of fire, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is where those who do not yield themselves to the Lord, who do not believe the gospel, they will be thrown out. Now, you may say to yourself, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to save that for later. Sorry. So again, we see that even though you may be hiding in plain sight, you know who you are and Jesus knows who you are. And you're to be warned. If you don't repent, Jesus is coming to judge and the judgment that he brings is hell. Eternal conscious suffering under the wrath of God for all eternity. Because you see, the sins that you've committed against God incur an infinite debt, and you will repay that debt forever in hell under his wrath, unless you repent. And so I plead with you to repent. And Jesus warns you to repent. Otherwise, this is what's coming. So we've looked at the warning that Jesus is coming And the warning that hell is the punishment that he brings. And now let's look at the third warning, which is that Jesus will curse those who tamper with his word. This is where I was wanting to jump ahead in the last point, so sorry about that. But look at verses 18 and 19 with me as we see that Jesus says, I will curse those who tamper with my word. Verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So what's the warning? The warning is, again, don't take away and don't add to the word of God. Now, in the immediate context here in verses 18 and 19, what specifically is John talking about? In context, he's talking specifically about the book of Revelation. He's saying don't add or take away from that. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can easily expand that to the rest of scripture as well. And do you know why we can expand that to the rest of scripture as well? Because that was done a long time ago when the Israelites were under the leadership of Moses. You remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses warns the Israelites, do not add and do not subtract from the word of God, lest his curse be upon you. You are his people. You are meant to dwell under his blessing. But you see, the way that you do that, and this has been the case since the garden, the way that we live under God's rule and blessing is by living in submission to his word. And so the warning is, don't try to be an authority unto yourself above the word of God. 
And brothers and sisters, I hope you understand what a relevant warning that is for each and every one of us. Because if you're not hearing the siren calls of the world, and really this has been here since the fall. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the main drivers of the fall. Let's do what's right in our own eyes. Let's treat the word of God like it's a smorgasbord, like it's a buffet. Yeah, sure, I'll take a little bit of that. I'm going to pass on that. Ah, okay, you know, you do you. That's the culture's mantra right now. Just another iteration of this. You be an authority unto yourself. You don't have to listen to anybody. Reality can be whatever you want it to be. And if you don't think that that hasn't seeped into the church, and we're not tempted to put ourselves above God's law and say, I like that, I don't like that. I like this, and so there's something that I want to add, and so I'll add it to it. Or I'll just ignore that. Brothers and sisters, that temptation is so strong. And I think we're seeing the fruit of it, even in our culture, that you just give yourself over to your own desires and how destructive that is. And here's the trick of the world and the flesh and the devil. They want to tell you that's the way of freedom. That's the way of happiness. That's the way of life. Don't deny your passions. What the word of God tells you is that's the way of bondage. That's the way of slavery. That's the way of sorrow. That is the way of death. And so by order of King Jesus himself, he says, you shall not tamper with my word. Now, I need to address something very briefly pastorally. You may think to yourself, hey, does verse 19 mean that you can lose your salvation? They lose. If anyone takes away from the book, then they will have taken away from them access to the tree and access to fellowship with God and his people? No, you're misunderstanding the text if that's what you think. And let me help you understand what John is talking about here. You can just go to John's epistle and understand it's when John says that they were among us, but they were not of us. It looked like they were a part of us, but eventually they departed and never came back. They weren't actually a part of the body of Christ, a part of the invisible church truly. And so eventually by jettisoning any submission to the word of God and just playing fast and loose with it, they've revealed that they never really belonged. And so they have no access through the second Adam to the tree of life and a fellowship with God and with his people. But be warned, church, Jesus is coming and he's coming to judge. And the judgment that he brings for unbelievers is hell. And we are not in a position as God's people, either inside or outside of the church, though this is addressing those inside of the church, that we can tamper with God's word, either adding or subtracting from it. And woe to those who try to do so, because the plagues of this book will be added to them, and then they will suffer forever under God's wrath. So we've looked at the glory of Jesus, And we've looked at the warnings of Jesus. And now finally, let's end with some good news here and look at the three comforts from Jesus in verses 14, 17, and 21. And again, as we look at these comforts, we shouldn't be surprised that the book closes with comforts because have we not seen time and time again throughout the book of Revelation that this revelation comforts the church? 
look, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Jesus' judgment is going to come raining down upon the earth. And even we as believers, the church, will experience many of those judgments. And the persecution from the flesh and the world and the devil is going to reach a fever pitch towards the end so that it looks like the church is just going to be completely snuffed out. And yet shot all throughout the book is comforts. I'm going to keep you. Endure, persevere. I'm coming soon. I know this is hard. I'm coming back. I will keep you. Remember what I've promised you. I will strengthen you to that end. And so I think it's glorious that Jesus ends giving us these comforts through these final verses. So we're going to look at each one of these. And the first one that we'll look at is in verse 14. And what we're shown there is that we have access to Jesus. So look at verse 14 with me. We're comforted by these words. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, some commentators have taken this verse to mean that washing their robes means that it's these good works that believers have done. And that's what gives them access to the tree of life and to enter through the city gates. And they say the reason for that is because the contrast is that the unbelievers, for their unrighteous works in verse 15 and verse 19, are kicked out of having access to the tree of life and are not able to enter into the gates of the city. And yet, brothers and sisters, we already know what washing our robes means because we've been told that by John earlier in the book of the Revelation. You remember in Revelation 7:14, we read about the glorified saints that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, why do we have access to the tree of life, which we argued a couple weeks ago is Jesus? Why do we have access to God and fellowship and communion with one another? It's because of the shed blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shed blood that purifies us from our sins. When he gives us the gift of faith and we exercise that faith and we're united to him and we're declared by the Father not guilty, forgiven, and righteous for Jesus' sake. And so what we're being shown is that we have access to Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit through Christ. And here's the other comfort is that we will be kept by Jesus and endure until the end so that we do enjoy that fellowship in communion represented by entering through the gates to the garden city, paradise regained, and to the tree of life. And so he will keep us. Jesus didn't just die for the possibility, the chance that you might through your good works and your best efforts make it and endure and persevere until the end. No, Jesus died to secure your place because you have been given to him by the Father in love according to his eternal plan. And so you will never be lost. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And so this is meant to comfort us, that this is what Jesus has done for us. We have access and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through Jesus. That's the first comfort. The second comfort is that we are invited to come freely. 
We're invited to come freely. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What a glorious verse. And I wish we had time to go to Isaiah 55 that John is so liberally borrowing from here. You'll have some time to meditate on that when we get to our prayer time as we adore God. We'll spend some time in Isaiah 55 then. But Isaiah 55 is this glorious, compassionate, merciful, loving call of God to the nations to come. Why are you wasting your efforts, wasting your life, laboring for things that can never satisfy you, the things of this world, when you were created for fellowship with me? And here's the thing, you lost that in the fall, and you can't regain that through your own efforts. But here's the thing, I freely give it to you in my son. And so John is picking that up, this glorious gospel call for all to come to Jesus. Because though as sinners we owe God an infinite debt, Jesus has paid that infinite debt on the cross. And though he's righteous and we're unrighteous and unfit to come into his presence, he's declared us righteous in Christ. So that we can come. And so this is the glorious good news of the gospel. And do you notice who's supposed to be proclaiming this? Look at the very beginning of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. Who's God's mouthpiece to this world? That unbelievers can freely come. They don't have to clean their act up first. They don't have to get their life in order first. They can freely come because of God's love shown to the world in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the church. The bride is the church. If you have not seen that clearly in the book of Revelation, I don't know what to tell you. But it's abundantly clear. The bride is the church. And so this is why we've been left here by the Lord Jesus to continue to do all that he began to do and teach, to proclaim the good news. That's why we proclaim the gospel to the unbelievers around us, whoever they may be. And that's why we send missionaries to the ends of the earth saying, come, give up your vain efforts to find life in any other place other than communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the one mediator between God and man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is what we are called to do. And so, Part of proclaiming the gospel is that we remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, this is our own story. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. It's such glorious good news. And the glorious good news is that it's not because of anything we have or haven't done. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's like that old hymn, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. It's freely given. And so we freely come and rejoice in that reality. So we've looked at the comfort of having access to Jesus And the comfort that we can come freely. And let's look lastly at the comfort 
that we have a gracious and ever-present Savior. In verse 21, listen to this glorious benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Isn't that a glorious ending to this book? Because, brothers and sisters, if we're left to our own devices, are we going to make it? Are we going to endure? Are we going to persevere in our own strength? You understand what we're up against, don't you? What does Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can't go up against the gates of hell in your own strength. I'm terrified to go up against the gates of hell with Jesus with me. Now, he shouldn't be. That's a confession. But you understand, we cannot keep ourselves. And so in this very final line of this glorious book, we're told that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us all. Now, you may say, how is that? Because I thought that Jesus ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So how is Jesus graciously present with us now? Well, I hope you know the answer to this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is present with us, right? He promises, go and make disciples of all the nations, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is he with us? He's with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is causing us graciously to believe and to obey and to persevere and to tremble at these warnings and repent and receive these comforts with faith and behold the glory of Jesus as we beheld it together. And so I hope that you see from this book of the Revelation what a sufficient Savior that we have. He is truly God. He is truly man. He is coming soon to judge. He brings his recompense with him. Those who tamper with his word will particularly be targeted. And yet for those of us who belong to him, we have access to God through Christ. And we can come freely. And he will keep us. Because he is with us. Even to the end of the age. And so may our hearts and our minds be filled with these realities, reflecting on his glory, heeding his warnings, and resting in his comforts, because he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever.